This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.33. A long time ago, we used to be friends. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm entitled to keep some secrets, aren't I? And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and paging Dr. Shar because Rekoa urgently needs a consultation. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 274 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Barbatos Lupus Rex and Case. Mobile Suit Breakdown is only possible with the support of listeners like you. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at gundampodcast.com patreon. A quick reminder that the Love is the Pulse of the Memes contest is accepting entries until 11.59 p.m. New York time on Friday, February 14th. To enter, post a love-themed Gundam meme to your social media using hashtag loveisthepulseofthememes and tagging at Gundam Podcast. You can also submit entries to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Four prizes will be awarded, and each prize contains Gunpla, Gundam fan art, and Mobile Suit Breakdown merch. For full rules, check out the post on our Patreon page, GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 32, Unidentified Mobile Suits. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers Ice Cream in Japan, Part 2, and Yazan's Tattoo. But first, let's tune in to the AUG Broadcasting Channel. You're listening to ABC, the AUG Broadcasting Channel. Greetings, valued AUG soldier. It is I, Yugi, the friendly and helpful assistance aardvark, here with some AUG advice for adolescent assets. Sometimes war can be hard, especially when you're young. Even though we're the good guys, you might find yourself feeling negative emotions like loneliness, doubt, anger, or sadness. These emotions are wrong, and it's bad of you to feel them. It's your duty to feel AUG-approved emotions. Gratitude, joy, arousal, or, ideally, nothing at all except a vast and hungry emptiness that lurks within, as though your whole being were a single marble rattling around in an empty coffee can. But because we're the good guys, the AUG Leadership Council of Lieutenant Quattro Bagina and Insert others here has dedicated some of its precious resources to helping you overcome your youthful inadequacies and ensure that you start experiencing your emotions correctly. So the next time you're feeling down, seek out one of our qualified battlefield therapists. They will record everything you tell them in your permanent record and then use our advanced app, AUGER, to calculate the number of enemies you need to kill before you'll feel better. 
and to make sure you get the community support you need. Everything you tell your battlefield therapist will also be shared with your colleagues, commanding officers, and romantic partners. In severe cases, the quartermaster may issue you between one and three orphaned children. A few days looking after those rambunctious scamps should have you fighting fit in no time. Here's a tip for free. Right now, you should be feeling grateful that AU cares so much about you. Note, the cost of using the AU therapy service, as well as any damage to your therapy orphans, will be automatically deducted from your pay. Now that you know how dangerous emotions can be, it's important to learn how to use them against our enemies. After all, we must do whatever it takes to defeat the Titans. There are many ways to do this, and the AUG Leadership Council encourages you to experiment. But here's an example scenario to get you started. AUG agent Shree Climb is walking through a public park looking for his friend's missing therapy orphans when he spots Kara, an enemy pilot around his age. Kara is alone and seems emotionally vulnerable. Knowing that falling in love in space has an 80% mortality rate, Shree approaches Kara and uses his debonair manners and natural animal magnetism to attract her attention. Don't you want to be a normal girl who is in love with me? He asks, and offers her an ice cream cone. Overcome by her emotions, Kara soon reveals all she knows about an evil titan's plot. Good job, Shree, and good job, ice cream cone. Now you too should be ready to go out there and seduce some enemy agents. But if you need more help, be sure to listen to Shree Klein's automated audio seminar, How to Destabilize Your Enemies by Killing Their Mentors, Friends, and Lovers, available via the AUG HR Automation interface in your quarters. From all of us here at AUG Advice for Adolescent Assets, good luck out there, kid. We're the good guys, and we must do whatever it takes to defeat the Titans or register trademarks of AUG. Information recorded in the AU graph may be shared with AU's third-party partners, including but not limited to Anaheim Electronics, Luo & Company, McDaniel's Hamburger Restaurants Limited, and the Granada City Tourism Authority. That's just how things are in the military. And now the recap for Unidentified Mobile Suits. After fleeing the explosion at Von Braun City, the Argama is forced to do repairs on the fly. They could return to the moon, but if they do, the Titans will certainly make contact with Axis before them, an outcome Wang Li considers unacceptable. Instead, they must press on, despite the risk to the ship and her crew. Quattro used to be part of Axis, but it has been so long since he left that he confesses to Bright, he has no idea who they will side with in this conflict. In the cafeteria, Rekoa sits alone, picking at her food. When Quattro sits down next to her, they make small talk, and her hand accidentally touches his when she hands him a drink. Obviously flustered, she excuses herself, and Camille takes her place at the table. He can tell that something is wrong with Rekoa. She has seemed different ever since her mission to infiltrate the Dogos Gear, but Quattro warns him against prying into the hearts of others. The Dogos Gear continues its pursuit of the Argama, and on the bridge, Sirocco wants to know Sarah's honest opinion of Yazan. A beast, she tells him, and Sirocco laughs, understanding her completely. 
She leaves the bridge and crosses paths with the man himself, newly stationed to their ship. Lookouts on the Argamot spot the Dogos gear, and Bright, Quattro, and Wangli argue about what to do. Bright counsels caution. Their ship is still undergoing repairs, and they have no idea what to expect when they make contact with Axis, but Wangli insists they attack immediately. Quattro has a plan that he thinks could succeed, even against the larger Dogos gear, leaving Bright outvoted and preparing for a battle he would have preferred to avoid. Quattro's first stop, even before he heads to the briefing room, is Rekawa's quarters. He takes a seat on her bed and explains his reason for coming. The Hyakushiki's new Mega Bazooka Launcher is complete, but it requires so much energy that he will need another mobile suit with him as a fuel tank. It's a dangerous task, but would Rekoa be willing to do it? Rekoa seems to think nothing of the risk, and accepts the task with no expression of doubt or concern. Business taken care of, Quattro notices that the room is almost devoid of plants, where they used to cover every surface. When he asks Reko about the change, she walks across the room to stand between his legs, her hands resting on his shoulders. I got tired of their messiness, she tells him, and yet, getting rid of them gives her no sense of relief. What are you suffering from, he presses, but she insists that she does not know. All she wants is to throw everything away and start over fresh somewhere else, but Quattro of all people knows how impossible this is, that you can never throw away your baggage. It stays with you until you die. Rekoa turns away, dissatisfied with his response, only to turn back, tilt her head, and close her eyes in the universal gesture of waiting to be kissed. Quattro stands and obliges before leaving to prepare for the fight, reminding Rekoa that they sortie in 15 minutes. Both sides launch their mobile suits. Camille fights well, but for every Titan suit he shoots down, it seems there is another right behind it. Ayug are outnumbered. In position with the Mega Bazooka launcher, Quattro is preparing to fire directly on the Dogos gear when suddenly everything goes red, and he again feels the intense pressure of Sirocco's presence. His first shot goes wide, and Rekoa's Gelgug has just enough energy for three more shots. The second hits doing significant damage but not enough to destroy the enemy ship. The third just barely misses the ship's bridge, and Sirocco finally sends out Yazan, who he had been keeping in reserve. The final shot from the Mega Bazooka launcher hits, and Quattro orders Rekoa and her now defenseless Gelguk back to the Argama. But on her way, Rekoa stops short. I can feel Sirocco, she says to herself, as a vision of him appears in her mind, and she turns back toward the Dogos gear. Camille tries to cover for other Ayug mobile suits, retreating as their suits run out of ammunition, but Yazan's arrival requires all of his attention. In a new Hambrabi, Yazan is faster than ever, and Camille's Zeta Gundam has been weakened by the long battle. The Hambrabi's claws rake and crush the back of the Zeta, destroying its verniers. Camille tries to fire, but is completely out of ammo. He is at Yazan's mercy, and this looks like the end for him, when Rekawa appears, charging Yazan and tackling him away, before grabbing hold of the Zeta with her Gelgug and retreating. Watching the battle from the bridge of his ship, Sirocco feels a strange pressure. Yazan pursues Camille and Rekoa, neither of whom will be able to fight back if they are caught. Camille tells Rekoa to leave him behind, but she refuses to abandon him. Yazan is catching up to them, but suddenly, 
innumerable laser beams slash across the battlefield. Dozens of unfamiliar mobile suits appear and begin to fight off the Titans. The Dogos Gear and its mobile suits are forced to retreat, and the Argama lives on to fight another day, thanks to the appearance of Axis at the crucial moment. Afterwards, when they are safe aboard their ship, Camille asks Rekoa what is going on with her. Why was she headed toward the enemy ship when she came to his rescue? Angrily, she insists that it's none of his business and that she has a right to keep some things to herself. In her quarters, she slumps down onto her bed. I guess I made it back again, she says to the empty room. Something is wrong with Rekoa. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is quite the right word to describe it, but a lot of the way that she's acting says to me that she is depressed. I mean, the first thing we see of her in this episode is that she's not eating. Like picking at her food, but can't bring herself to eat. Her plants that she loved, she's getting rid of. By the time we see her, she's already gotten rid of most of them and she's cleaning the last couple out of her room. By the end, it's empty. It's barren. But at the same time, she tells Quattro that getting rid of the plants doesn't seem to have made her feel any better. She was sick of them. She was fed up with them. But she doesn't feel refreshed now that they're gone. And at the end, when she walks back into her completely empty room, it's very stark. We get a shot of her in the dark. She turns on the light. It's empty. She sits down on the bed. We know she's thinking about Sirocco. And then she sort of falls in a lump on her bed and has herself a depression nap. And when she first comes in, she says, well, back alive again, as if she feels sort of ambivalent about this. <laughs> like she's not sure whether she's happy or sad about it. Yeah. Unclear whether she's surprised to be still alive or if she's surprised that she once again returned to the Argama. Like maybe she was thinking of not returning. She talks about wanting to throw it all away and go somewhere. Get away from everything. Start over. She says this in a conversation with Quattro, which is great because it's Quattro. Oh my gosh. This whole conversation. This is just, it's the blind leading the blind emotionally. She asks Quattro something like, but why do we feel things? And he says, I don't know, probably for no reason. And he asks her if she knows why she's feeling things. And she says something like, no, and I assume that nobody else knows why they feel things either. And Quattro is like, yep, that checks out. That's consistent with my own personal experience. I don't know. I sort of interpreted her as saying that no one can completely understand themselves, which I think is true. Yeah, you're right. But I think there's a lot of distance between no one can completely understand themselves versus understanding why you're feeling an emotion. Yeah, but the irony of Quattro, I mean, Char, I mean, Casval, I mean... Edouard. Telling her that, oh, nobody can ever get away from their baggage. <laughs> You'll have it with you until you die. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> and this in the episode where he's talking to Bright about Axis. And he says, I don't know what Axis is going to do. It's been a long time since I left. His baggage is coming back to haunt him in this episode. 
This whole scene between Recco and Quattro is so strange to me <laughs> because they're talking about sort of the inscrutability of human emotion. <laughs> but at the same time, their physical actions are sort of romantic. Quattro is sitting at the edge of Recco's bed and she comes and stands between his knees. He puts a hand on her leg. She puts her hands on his shoulders. At first, when he tells her that running away doesn't fix anything, she turns away almost as if she's angry. But then she winds up turning back towards him, tilting her head up, closing her eyes in the universal waiting for a kiss pose. <laughs> but he's like three feet away from her. I'm used to seeing this pose when you're already close to somebody. You know, you're already in an embrace or at least standing right in front of one another. He has to like take several steps to her <laughs> while she waits in this pose. Who does that? No one. No one would do that. And then I see Quattro going through the motions of doing this kiss. And then as soon as it's over, he does not linger for a moment. He walks out the door, turns around and says something along the lines of, the mission starts in 15 minutes. I'll see you there, Ensign. And it really is going through the motions. It all feels very dutiful. He recognizes that she is expecting a kiss. He provides the expected kiss. And that's it. There's nothing there. There's no feeling from him. And you can see this on his face throughout this whole scene. I recommend everybody go back, watch this scene again with the sound off and the subtitles off because watching their more subtle body language tells you a lot about them. And it's very different both from what they're saying and from what they're sort of larger gross actions are. Pantomiming. <laughs> Quattro is so uncomfortable when Rekua gets close to him. When she first goes to stand between his legs, the expression on his face is dismay. Rekua is extremely nervous. When Quattro first enters the room, you can see her like playing with her hands in the universal symbol for someone who's nervous. She's always holding her arms. She has her arms crossed in front of her, or she has one hand on one elbow, protective, defensive, covering her squishy midsection. I thought it was funny that you mentioned going through the motions as sort of Quattro's MO here, because he does show up initially to ask her to pilot the mobile suit that's going to be the battery pack effectively for his new gun. And that already feels very sexual. Like, will, <laughs> will you be the battery pack for my giant gun? It feels sexual when he suggests it. Just wait until you actually see it in the episode because it's very suggestive. It is an utterly transparent metaphor for sex. I wonder if it was inspired a little bit by the opening credits of Dr. Strangelove, the midair refueling mm. that is <laughs> <was> very... <laughs> it could be. Yeah, because Quattro's Quattro is plugging a cable coming off of his giant gun into a port around the like hip of Rekua's Gelgoog. And not only is this a giant gun, which the Hakushiki positions sort of in front of its chest, but also sort of in front of its groin, it um, extends when it's deployed. Anyway... That guns are phallic is not news to anyone, but... <laughs> this is a particularly phallic gun. Yeah. Um, and we also have that earlier scene where Rekua accidentally touches Quattro's hand in the cafeteria and immediately reacts with a lot of embarrassment and even gets up and leaves the table. 
And that's the kind of behavior that we typically associate with a crush, right? Like, oh, she wouldn't act so embarrassed if she didn't have feelings for him. But so much of her facial expression, so much of her vocal tone in her scene with Quattro in her bedroom feels very cold and very emotionless. Very mechanical. Yeah. And think about after the kiss, which she's the one who turned her face up like, okay, kiss me now. Her facial expression is very serious, even stern. And she wipes her mouth. And not not in a like smiley, haha, we were just making out kind of way. In a like, she doesn't look happy. She doesn't look pleased. She doesn't look like anything positive <laughs> just happened. She, I would say she looks not quite disgusted, but... She's not happy about it. And there's a kind of contemplative feel to it. Which is why I think to some degree she is also going through the motions. Mm -hmm. Despite some of the behavior that seems like maybe she likes Quattro, perhaps that's nervousness for another reason. And her behavior around Quattro is actually just her trying to feel better. She's like, well, I feel completely (laughs) miserable would romance make me feel better? Would sex make me feel better? Would... Rekawa is constructed in this episode visually to convey isolation. She's first introduced with a panning shot across a cafeteria. The cafeteria is full of Ayuk officers. They're all wearing more or less the same uniform. She is not. She's wearing a different uniform. They're all men. This is... We've seen this cafeteria before. Usually the gender ratio is much closer to equal. Not this time. Reko is sitting by herself in a corner, picking at her food. Everything about this conveys isolation. Later in her room, which used to be full of plants, it felt very alive, it felt very connected. She had a maternal kind of relationship with them. She's getting rid of the plants. She is getting rid of her connections. She is abandoning her children, classic Gundam mother behavior. And then at the very end of the episode, her room is barren. It's empty. It's just her. And this is right after she has rejected Camille's attempt to make a connection with her. And so Rekawa's isolation has to be a factor in her sort of desperate but also half-hearted reaching out to Quattro. And on the other side, Quattro never does anything for only one reason. (laughs) Yeah, this feels like it comes right out of the Shah Aznable school of leadership. Like, oh, you have a subordinate who seems like she might be interested in you? Offer her a dangerous mission, but definitely kiss her first. That'll ensure her loyalty. Right. This feels more motivated by an attempt to keep Rekawa fighting well than by any actual interest in her as a person. It's like, oh, something's wrong with Rekawa. The only thing I know to do about (laughs) that is maybe to inspire her with love for me. Maybe that will help. I don't know. If Rekawa had not asked for that kiss, what do you think the percentage chance is that Quattro would have kissed her? 10... I think it's low, but not super, super low. Okay. What do you think? I would have said it was super, super low. Okay, like 1% chance. (laughs) And that 1% is like the ship gets jarred and they get knocked together. Meet cute style. Yeah. Yeah. They seemed much more comfortable fighting together than at any other point in this episode. That's just Gundam stuff for you. Fighting offers clarity. You've mentioned a couple of times how... Rekawa is preoccupied with Sirocco in this episode. She can't stop thinking about the guy. Uh, What do you think is the nature of that preoccupation? (laughs) It's complicated, right? 
She gives no indication that her feelings are positive. There's no, like, thinking about Sirocco and smiling. There's no bichon and sparkle. It feels intrusive. These are not thoughts she wants to be having, but they're thoughts she cannot stop having. We're in agreement, right? He did some kind of new type mojo on her brain. I think so. He did something mystical. It's either something he did or something he is currently doing. That's true. He could be devoting some amount of ongoing energy to whatever he's doing to Rekawa. Now, from Sirocco's character design, from his overall presentation, from the things he says and the way he says them and the people that he interacts with, the overwhelming feeling I get from him is seduction. But not seduction for romance, not seduction for sex or personal gratification or companionship. Seduction for power. Control. Exactly. And so... I characterize whatever he's done to Rekawa's mind in the language of seduction. It has that character to it. But I also recognize that that's me projecting Sirocco's characterization onto what Rekawa is seeing, and it's not necessarily that. But we know she's not thinking about that time he hit her. Yeah, I wondered, because it feels as if she has a sort of a block to talking about him. And she has decided to characterize that as that she's entitled to have some secrets and she doesn't have to tell everybody everything. But when she first returns on her mission, she's trying to draw or or say something about Sirocco and she can't. And it clearly is causing her physical discomfort. We see her pouring sweat. And shaking and her head hurts. So it's possible there is an, an actual like physical and mental block there. That any attempt to talk about Sirocco is going to cause her mental and physical pain. She just, like, can't do it. I also wonder if there's a sense of doom, like something horrible will happen. Hmm. You know who else starts pouring sweat and shaking during this episode? Yazan, when he meets Sirocco. When Yazan meets Sirocco on the bridge of the Dogos gear, Yazan starts sweating. Yazan recoils. There's a sense of his body going rigid, and he sort of leans his upper body, his face, away from Sirocco as much as he can without actually taking a step back. And this is the moment when Yazan and Sirocco kind of reach an accord between the two of them. It feels like they're feeling each other out, and then... It's Yazan who breaks. It's Yazan who's like, who extends the hand to shake it and becomes in that moment very biddable. I love Sarah's reactions in that scene, partially because little did we know, Sarah still a bit naive, even <laughs> after all she's been through. Because Sirocco asks her, how would you characterize Yazan? What's your impression of him? When Sarah tells Sirocco that Yazan is like a beast... That's all Sirocco needs to know to then be able to completely tailor his approach to Yazan. So Sarah is watching this scene mystified like, oh, I like Sirocco and I hate Yazan. But somehow Sirocco and Yazan are getting along really well. How is this possible? <laughs> and it's because Sirocco is a different person to each person he interacts with. And it's very carefully tailored to what he thinks is going to get that person to behave the way he wants them to. Sirocco knows how to tame the beast, or so it seems. It's just the right amount of, like, goading Yazan to be better, but also flattery. Mm -hmm. 
which Yazan loves, apparently just lives for. <laughs> I'm not going to treat you like the other pilots. Good. <laughs> I think that's really perceptive. What you said about Sirocco being a different person for every person he meets. Absolutely. Quattro tries to do that and he can't. I feel like what we're seeing with Quattro is the same kind of blank persona that just can't effectively be what it needs to be in each situation because Quattro doesn't understand people. As he admits in this episode when he's talking to Camille, he says, you know, you need a certain amount of experience to be able to plumb the depths of the human heart. And Camille is like, yeah, but don't you have that experience, Lieutenant? You're like 27. <laughs> and Quattro's like, nope, I have no clue what people are thinking or feeling. Insofar as very powerful new type abilities are equated to some degree with emotional intelligence and empathy for other people, this is very fitting because while we know and have seen Quattro display new type abilities, he's never gone to that level beyond. He seems stuck where he is. He doesn't get any better, really. And he is sort of superseded by all of these other new types around him. And I wonder, which is the chicken and which the egg? <laughs> <laughs> Does emotional intelligence give you new type abilities? Do new type abilities give you emotional intelligence and sympathy and empathy for other people? Uh, are they correlated but not causal? <laughs> is one the key to being able to unlock the other, but only if you actually use it? Good questions. And you know I love when I can find parallels between different characters. In the same episode, Rekua and Sarah in this episode. How so? First, besides the fact that they're the only significant women, which is not nothing, um, both of them are principally observers throughout the episode. Rekua in the Gelgoog fuel tank, Sarah on the bridge of the Dogos gear, both of them have an observation role. There's also a visual element. They do a pose, which is unique to both of them and rarely shows up, or at least has rarely shown up so far in Zeta, which is where they sort of incline their head forward towards the camera, which creates a visual effect where the forehead is made larger, the chin is made smaller. It's frequently used in anime, visual media in general, for people who are psychic, for people who are kind of like dark and withdrawn, but in a perceptive way. It can, uh, depending on the facial expression, I think it can give a lot of sense of intensity because the, uh, the person with their head in this position is sort of looking up at the camera. And so their eyes are shadowed. And and like I said, it doesn't show up very much in Gundam. Rekua and Sarah both do it in this episode, and they do it within a minute of each other. Rekua does it when she first goes to launch. And then a moment later when Sirocco asks Sarah what she perceives from the enemy ship and whether or not she thinks it's the Argama, Sarah does the same thing. We've established that Rekua is having these sort of persistent and unwelcome thoughts of Sirocco. On the battlefield, when she senses him and she turns around and heads straight for the Dogoskir, despite the fact that her mobile suit has no power to do anything. Is she trying to confront him? Is she trying to die? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Do you have an opinion? 
I think it might be a compulsion. I don't think it's conscious. I don't think she at any point thought I'm going to go get myself killed or at any point thought I'm going to go get rid of Sirocco. I think she's drawn to him in a way that she cannot explain to herself or anyone else. And that might explain why she reacts so strongly to Camille when he asks her what she was doing. Because her reaction is extreme. When he puts a hand on her shoulder and he asks her, you know, what were you doing out there? She turns on him. She gets very angry. And this is when she says, I have the right to some secrets. Which, of course, that's true. But also, Camille is totally in the right, asking his friend why she was doing something so reckless and dangerous. And they are friends, or at least they were, or it seemed like they were. She saved his life. And then when they were trying to retreat, the Zeta was damaged. Yazan was coming for them. Camille says, run and save yourself. And Rekua says, I won't leave you. And when he thanks her for saving him, she says, well, I was glad to be able to repay Jaburo. As long as he doesn't ask anything that starts to touch on Sirocco or this compulsive behavior of hers or her internal world. It's all gravy. It's all dandelions. It's also possible that her nervousness around Quattro is not romance like we thought it might have been, but is maybe a fear that he will be able to sense or identify whatever it is Sirocco has done to her. Hmm. Or the fact that she's keeping a secret or something. If Sirocco has the power to compel behavior like what we saw her do during the battle, it's possible whatever he did to her also has the power to compel a kind of self-imposed isolation or just make her uncomfortable around other people, which would have the same effect. You know, I think there's also something wrong with Quattro in this episode. (laughs) He is consistently inconsistent. I was struck in this episode by what a horrible position Bright is in uh, and how Quattro is a big part of that. Because first, we have Quattro seeming to say that he thinks they should turn around and go back to the moon for the purposes of getting the ship repaired. And Wong Li is like, oh, but if we do that, then the Titans are sure to contact Axis. No, we have to press on. I, I demand it. I demand it on the authority of my boss. But then as soon as he's out of the room, Quattro's like, well, he's right. The Titans would make contact with Axis unless we go right now. Despite the fact that Quattro keeps insisting that he's only a lieutenant, he has a general's authority. He has the ability to set policy on the ship. Bright doesn't want to fight the Dogos gear. Bright is thinking, we don't know what's going to happen when we contact Axis. We might wind up in a fight then. It's really reckless of us to get into this fight now when we don't know what's happening. And yes, at the end of the episode, the Axis mobile suits show up and they do drive off the Titans and help Ayuk. But if it had gone the other way, with all of their mobile suits out and most of them damaged, when the Axis army shows up... Or if Axis just hadn't shown up, you know, Camille was working as hard as he could and for every suit he took out another suit would appear behind it they were outgunned and yazan at the end there had camille dead to rights if not for the axis mobile suits camille would be dead and it's quattro bleeping quattro (laughs) who is like oh well i have a plan it'll just take me 30 minutes 
I can almost like feel the consternation radiating off of Bright when this happens. Yeah. Because he basically constantly undermines Bright's authority <laughs> and there's nothing Bright can do about it. But because Quattro refuses to actually step up and take authority unto himself, all he's doing is making suggestions, which is the worst. And his suggestions, again, are all over the place. Sometimes he's siding with Bright against Wong, and then the next second he's siding with Wong against Bright. Here's a possibility. We know Axis is a thing from Quattro's past. He doesn't seem particularly happy about reconnecting with them. He says, it's been a long time since I was there. I don't know how they're going to behave. Initially, when he's talking to Wong Li, Quattro is essentially advocating for a let us not go to Axis position because Quattro doesn't want to go to Axis. Quattro feels really bad about the possibility of seeing the people on Axis again. So he decides to make himself feel better with a little space murder. It is the one thing he's good at. He didn't do that hot today. No, he did not. That felt like the influence of Sirocco, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. That was, because right before he misses that first shot, he has that Kono Presha line about he can feel the pressure coming off of the Dogoskir. And it felt like he was using his new type abilities to help him aim this weapon at these extreme ranges. That he's using his sense beyond sense. But that the pressure from Sirocco is like jamming his new type radar. Sirocco is so powerful. That the aura of the man just like completely fills the battlefield. I have to ask you, is this one of the episodes written by the male lead writer? I don't know if I would call him a lead writer, but yes, this is one of the Endo episodes. Three guesses how I knew. <laughs> is it um, unfair treatment of Fa? <laughs> Bryce's insistence that he will never make Fa Yuri, a pilot ever again. Just, uh, I mean, you're all going to die. You have one mobile suit left to help with and one person who can pilot it pretty well most of the time. And you're going to be like, no. Also, look, this is clearly a reference to the last episode written by Endo, which ended with a whole big group on the bridge talking about how Fa is unsuitable as a pilot because she got out of her mobile suit to go save the children from the fire in the crew quarters after putting out the fire in the crew quarters. Two episodes ago in the podcast, we talked a lot about how unfair that was and how we hated it. We hate this too. But what makes this especially weird is that there was an episode in between those two. And in that episode, Fa went out and did piloting things. And it was perfectly normal and no one said anything about it. And Bright had no objections. Are we going to end up alternating episodes and each series will just act as if the other ones don't <laughs> exist? In some episodes, Fa will be a pilot and nobody will think it's odd. And in the other half of the episodes, Fa will never pilot again. She'll just be doing... Doing mom stuff, folding clothes, yelling at kids. Two entirely separate parallel continuities of Zeta. We're going to have to keep an eye on that. <laughs> I was a bit curious why they included her scenes at all in this episode, because they're not at all essential to the plot. The first one, the kids are sort of rough and tumble playing. She's folding clothes. In the second one, uh, they're all in their normal suits watching the battle on a view screen while they wait. In particular, that first one is kind of a big Wong Li scene. He walks by 
Uh, Camille is there and clearly terrified of Wong Lee. Everything is very, yes, sir, no, sir, right away, sir. He goes completely rigid. He's like leaning back to get his body as far away from Wong Lee as he can. His eyes go wide. His pupils get very small. He is terrified. And gets out of there as quickly as possible. Wong Lee, who also still does not call him by his name. Hey, new type. But then goes and has this like sort of sweet scene with Shinta and Kum where he gives them sodas from the vending machine. Even though they're being very shy about it, he buys them sodas and he's like, oh, kids should be more honest about what they want. Fa is clearly like very polite, but not overawed by him. And so what is the point of showing us nice Wong Lee? Like, what is that for? In an episode where every other depiction of Wong has been negative. Every other depiction of him in this entire show has been negative. We've seen him be, like, cruel and abusive of his power. We have seen him be completely unreasonable with regards to the way he orders around Bright and the other ships, the things he expects them to do, the results he expects them to achieve. We've also seen him be obsequious and a toady to his boss, Carbine. While at the same time, clearly riding that boss's coattails in terms of power and being able to use that power to make people do things. Half the time, it doesn't seem like he actually knows anything useful or helpful to any of what's happening. He doesn't understand how to fight a battle. (laughs) But because he brings the money, he gets to order people around. He's gross. Yeah. And yet here they give us this nice scene. Why? Maybe the whole scene is a metaphor. Him taking material resources from the vending machine and transferring them to the children. Doing nothing at all, essentially, except passing things along. And yet they're supposed to thank him. I did think a bit about some of what you've talked about in recent research about sort of like powerful oligarchs using their money for influence. And one of the things we talk about in the U.S. is exceptionally rich people uh, donating sums of money that seem like a lot of money to most people, but to them are actually completely insignificant compared to their vast sums of wealth in order to buy goodwill. (laughs) Like, oh, see, I'm not one of those. I'm not a baddie just because I have money. Look at all this charitable giving I do. I'm a kind person who gives soda to orphans. Please ignore everything else you know about my personality. It makes me a little sick to my stomach to say this, but I do have to agree with one thing Wong Lee said this episode. Oh, yeah? When he sees the orphans, he's like, oh, are these the ones Quattro brought from Earth? What was he thinking? <laughs> I also wondered a bit if Wong Lee is not supposed to represent a kind of, a kind of father figure. And not a, not a good or kind or terribly approachable one, but the very sort of stern and serious and scary father figure who still occasionally does nice things for you. Yeah, I think some of that is there. The bit with Bright not remembering that he sent Fa out as a pilot just last episode reminds me that I've actually noticed a couple of continuity errors sneaking through in recent episodes. For the most part, they're small things, animation issues, stuff like in Jared's Desperate Attack, for instance, there's a scene where the Mark II's shield gets completely destroyed. It then appears again intact in the following scene, and in the scene after that, it's gone. 
Also, Jared's Gabflay gets its arms and legs shot off. It then appears in another scene with its arms and legs back on, and then later they're gone again. I think we've talked in previous episodes about how the way production works, certain scenes might be completed by different studios than the main studio, and so that could be part of it. Yeah, Zeta has a big and quite fragmented team. The list of you know different directors working on different episodes, different writers, different key animators is quite long. It's a lot bigger. It's a lot more people. It's a lot more moving parts to keep track of than it was in First Gundam. And we've noticed, looking at the credits, that at this point... Tomino, at least, is pulling back a little bit from his involvement in the series. He's not writing as much. It's very possible a lot of the other senior staff, the people who would be expected normally to watch out for these things, are being moved on to other projects or are splitting their time between Zeta and other things. It's very normal in anime for uh, a lot of staff changes, quality drops, even studio changes when you get into the second season of something. And so it's not exactly shocking, but it is definitely worth noticing. Yeah, I bet if we pulled up various people's list of shows that they worked on, we would see quite a few overlaps with Zeta. Or shows that started right after Zeta. You know, pre-production for an anime takes a while. And so if you're working on prepping the next show and trying to keep track of Zeta, some things are going to slip through the cracks. The other sort of animation quality thing that we noticed in this episode, um, there's definitely a disappearing leg (laughs) at one point. (laughs) In the scene with Reco and Quattro, you can see the leg of his that's in the foreground when he's sitting, but for some reason you can't see any of his background leg, even though part of it should be a little visible um, because of the angle. But anyway, so he's missing a leg at one point. (laughs) But Nina, the legs are for show. Yeah. The viewers just don't understand that. Obviously, legs are unnecessary in space. Um, And then some very weird faces. Yeah, um, a lot of off-model faces. A lot of people who don't look quite right scene to scene. This is especially true of Yazan. In the scene he has with Sirocco, it feels like every couple of seconds, his face design changes completely and he looks like a different character. There were some strong disagreements about what Yazan looks like. Some very distorted expressions. And also, not that this was a a problem with the animation, but Yazan's character design. Can we talk talk about that for a minute? (laughs) The open jacket, the high-waisted pants. Well, and he says open jacket. It's like showing his entire chest almost down to his navel. Yeah, I don't know that it could be closed. I don't know that those two parts could come together. And it's short-sleeved. And bright yellow. And he's got like a ribbon of black fabric tied around his waist as a belt with the knot at like slightly off-center. We thought it looked a little reminiscent of like a martial arts gi. It has a Titan's patch on the back on one side. Like off-kilter. And then what I first thought was a necklace but turned out to be a tattoo. It is a bright green turtle in the middle of his chest. Yes, it is. What? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) What? What? What are you doing? I actually know what they're doing there. (gasps) And that will have to wait for the research segment. I can't wait. But then the most dramatic moment in the episode. The arrival of the horde of Axis mobile suits. 
Wow. More mobile suits on screen at one moment than we have seen since, like, the Battle of Solomon back in First Gundam. And their leader, a presence that... Even Sirocco notices. It seems like it overwhelms him. He has never felt anything like this before. We never see him react to another new type this way. And suddenly we understand why a bunch of different disparate groups might both be trying to win over Axis, even though it seems wild that none of them have any clue which side Axis will take. It's like, well, there's this group of people none of us know anything about, but they have more mobile suits than the rest of us combined. Yeah. And really powerful new types. Yeah. So let's go see what they want, shall we? (laughs) Maybe we can give it to them. I don't know. And this is a phenomenal bit of storytelling from Zeta Gundam. They don't need to tell us a single word of exposition. No one needs to say, we must form an alliance with the Axis. Their mobile suit forces are incredible. Their numbers, astounding. We don't need that. Because instead, we get a shot of like 50 mobile suits. And that last second of the episode, when we see that woman... And I know who she is, even though I'm not supposed to. Some things do get spoiled. What up, Haman? How do you know that name? Blame it on the internet and also our listeners. I will blame our listeners. (laughs) And now our research. This week, Nina has the second part of her research into ice cream in Japan, and I looked into Yazan's tattoo. Welcome back to part two of my research on the history of ice cream in Japan. And good thing, too, because otherwise I'd probably be writing about Rekawa's depression. Last week, I left off by talking about ice cream as an important morale booster during World War II, and how the military requisitioning of dairy production and the government-mandated untenably low prices brought ice cream production in Japan to a near-complete halt until the war was over. This week, I'll be talking about changes to ice cream production, availability, and perception in the post-war period and into the 1980s, and maybe shedding a bit of light on Camille's urgent need to buy Sarah an ice cream cone. After World War II, the Occupation Authority actually added milk back to Japan's school lunch program in an effort to increase the amount of protein in the Japanese diet. In the period when dairy production was recovering from the war, ice candy was very popular. It's similar to what we now call popsicles, but sometimes they weren't even flavored, they were just frozen sugar water. Iconic Japanese soft serve first appeared in 1952, a creation of the Yukijirushi Dairy Company. Over time, people came to prefer the soft texture of ice cream to the hard texture of ice candy. And it wasn't until 1955 that various techniques and equipment for mass production of dairy generally and ice cream bars specifically was implemented, both having been imported from Denmark. Thanks to these technological improvements to production, they were able to sell a popular ice cream bar for only 10 yen. Adjusted for inflation, that's about 60 yen today, a bit less than 60 cents. Mass production had finally allowed for prices low enough to make ice cream a widely available and affordable good. Cooler technology, they didn't even have freezers yet, (laughs) and mass production meant that ice cream could be sold at grocery stores, bakeries, sweets shops, and tobacconists on top of the bicycle ice cream carts I mentioned last week, 
I wonder if the coolers rather than freezers were part of the reason why soft serve became such a thing in Japan. Because I think it needs to be kept at a warmer temperature than the classic hard, cold ice cream. It also has a greater perception of freshness since it's coming straight out of the machine. Like the mix has to go into the machine and be partially frozen. And it, it's like made just for you as mm. opposed to being scooped out of a container or prepackaged. And in fact, different ice cream brands and manufacturers would lend specialty coolers to stores at no cost so that the stores could and would stock their ice cream products. Yeah, these early coolers were specially insulated containers that would then be packed with dry ice. One of the most popular ice cream bars of the early 1960s was called the Home Run Bar. If the stick inside your ice cream bar had the right mark on it, it meant you had gotten a home run and won a free ice cream from the store where you purchased the first one. You can imagine how popular a promotion that would be. Although, of course, I immediately imagine all the different ways a person could cheat. <laughs> well, you know the very popular koala cookies, right? Mm -hmm. I was reading an article this week talking about how they initially surged into popularity because a rumor went around amongst teenage girls that if you found a koala with eyebrows, it meant you were going to have good luck that week. Wow, the lucky eyebrow koala. And so maybe there's something to the hunt rather than just getting the free ice cream. Well, it feels a bit like a gacha, doesn't it? Yeah. Gacha is a style of game that I think originated in Japan where... You buy something blind, you don't know what's going to be inside of it, but there are a bunch of different things it could be, and you're trying to collect them all or collect a specific one. And so you're incentivized to buy lots of this thing until you get the one you want or until you manage to get every version. Yeah, and the rarities for these different items are vastly different. So to give an example, um, and the full term is gachapon, it gets shortened to gacha. For, say, a first Gundam gachapon, you might put in a 100 yen coin, turn the lever, and out pops a little capsule with a blind-packed Gundam toy in it, and 97 of them are Zakus, and two of them are gun cannons, and one of them is the Gundam. Right. Yeah, the way ice cream was advertised changed considerably at this time. From the Meiji period, ice cream had been pretty much just a summer snack, and advertising was largely confined to notices of when ice cream was being stocked again. Like, ah, summer is here, ice cream is back. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. But the first Tokyo Olympics in 1964 were really when this image started to expand. Summer in Tokyo, it's quite hot. You have a lot of international visitors. You have these massive events. It's very much a being on the world stage. And that's when they started to think of ice cream, not just as for the summertime and not just for kids, but as a product for a wider audience. Uh, in Japan, sweets are strongly associated with women and children specifically. And so marketing sweet food to men is like a whole different and sort of more complicated issue. And maybe we'll talk about that some more at another time, but, uh, expanding the sweets market out from that audience of just kids and just summertime would have been a big deal and would have been a, a massive increase in the number and sort of people buying ice creams. From 1966 to 1985, the amount of ice cream produced, valued in hundreds of millions of yen, increased more than sixfold. By 1970, total annual ice cream sales were 736 hundred million yen per year. Given that an individual ice cream cost 50 yen, 
that meant that they were selling almost 15 million units each year. But this works out to not even one ice cream per person per year. Thanks to booming economic growth that characterized the rebuilding in the post-war period, quality of life for normal Japanese people improved dramatically. There's this saying, in Japan, the three sacred treasures are an important part of the imperial regalia, and they're a sword, a jewel, and a mirror. But in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of people started talking about the new three sacred treasures, which were said to symbolize modern prosperity. The TV, the washing machine, and the refrigerator. (laughs) By 1970, this had changed to the color TV, the air conditioner, and the automobile. But the spread of refrigeration technology further expanded the potential market for ice cream in Japan. By 1985, it was up to 3,115 hundred million yen per year. As a side note, if you're wondering about my using hundreds of millions as a unit here, uh, it's because the Japanese language doesn't count large numbers the same way we do in English. They have ones and tens and hundreds and thousands, but then they have ten thousands, or man, and then hundred millions, or oku. The source I'm reading describes the numbers thus, and I don't feel like converting them. How many cubits of ice cream are being sold? <laughs> that 3,115 million yen per year works out to more than 50 ice creams per person per year. Wow. From less than one per person to almost one per week per person in a matter of 14 years, assuming the price didn't increase too much. There was also an ice cream boom of a sorts in the mid-80s, with ice cream-specific shops, Haagen-Dazs among them, opening to lines around the block. An article from the New York Times in 1985 talks about Haagen-Dazs' position as a premium but still affordable ice cream and a status symbol in fashion-conscious neighborhoods of Tokyo. It was more important to be seen with a Haagen-Dazs cone than to have eaten it. This fits with the image of both Sarah playing at being a normal, fashionable young woman, and the image of those three friends walking through the park also eating ice cream. It is shortly after Sarah notices these girls and expresses a desire to be like them that Camille rushes off to buy the ice cream. Here is where I depart from the text somewhat uh, and come to some of my own conclusions about what this scene means. I read an ethnographic study about fast food in Japan. Ethnography is mostly a fancy way of saying they took observations of behavior, customs, and culture. And while it doesn't mention ice cream specifically, it discusses how, in Japanese culture, sharing fast food provides an opportunity for spending cheerful, enjoyable, social time together. That the sharing of food can even be an intimate, in the platonic sense, act, a way of building closeness between people. Ice cream is not a particularly shareable food, unlike, say, french fries, but they are eating together. One thing that they observed in the study is that when a family goes out for fast food, it is typically the mother who goes to order, brings the food back to the table, and shares it out to the family, possibly since mothers are the ones handling food at home and often the family budgeting as well. Is Camille, in doing this for Sarah, demonstrating a kind of motherliness? Aww. I think he is. Camille is a good mom. In a situation where friends are eating fast food together, they typically order for themselves, although they may still share food. So the fact that Camille rushes off to get this thing for her, uh, I think is him behaving in a caring and parental way. If this were meant to be romantic, they might share a single cone. Anime fans will be familiar with the idea of an indirect kiss. (laughs) 
sharing food or drinks in such a way that two people's mouths touch the same spots. Uh, Though it's worth pointing out, this is only romantic in specific contexts. Family members sharing, say, a burger and biting into the same side of it was commonly observed in the study I read and obviously doesn't have any romantic overtones in that situation. But it's still intimate. It's still about closeness. After my recent research on kissing, this concept feels a bit less silly and a bit more understandable as something that isn't a kiss but hints at intimacy, both romantic and platonic. But for all Sarah's off-putting attempts at flirting, Camille isn't trying to impose on her or flirt back. He's just trying to build a bridge or an emotional connection, a means to try to reach her and convince her to leave the Titans and the war behind her. This is all to say, the ice cream serves two purposes in this episode. It hints at what normal life could be if Sarah had the ability or freedom to live it. Trendy, carefree, sociable. She could relax, have fun, have friends, if she could get away somehow. And it demonstrates Camille's desire to connect with Sarah so that he can save her. We talked last week a bit about his savior complex, but that he's at least mature enough to understand he can't talk Sarah out of being a titan if she doesn't trust him or feel any connection to him. And his urgency in getting her this ice cream is him trying to create that. Oh, mama bird. I read an article that was talking about the 1980s as the moment for Japan when kawaii culture or cute culture really emerged into its own. And a lot of this had to do with the 1980s being the moment when teenagers came into their own with some independence, some economic power. A lot of them had part-time jobs. They were making some money, uh, and so they were able to spend money. They were trendy, and they were numerous, which, as it happened in every country that had a baby boom, dramatically distorted the Japanese economy and culture. And it created, maybe for the first time, but certainly for the first time in a long time, a kind of cult of youth youthfulness itself, cuteness, kawaii-ness, became valued, and it became cool. And this was also when idol culture, the sort of almost worship of these quite young celebrities, who were themselves quite cute, started to become a major force. All of this conspired to create an appetite for cute clothing, cute hobbies, cute amusements, and cute food. As much as it might be kind of strange to say cute food, there are foods that are cute. Mm -hmm. One of the things that makes food cute is if it's kind of childish. And in the Japanese conception of flavors, sweet is a childish flavor and soft is a childish texture. So something that's soft and sweet is ultra childish, ultra cute, and fits into this whole emerging kawaii culture. And this idea that Camille has already kind of come to grips with having lost his own childhood, but he doesn't want anyone else to lose theirs. And this certain sort of desperation he has in dealing with Sarah of really wanting her to have as much of that childhood as she can, which would mean her needing to leave the Titans immediately. During the talkback, I teased all of you that I was going to be talking a bit more about Yazan's newly displayed turtle tattoo. It's so small and cute. But on a guy like that who is showing off tattoos, you expect like the full chest or (laughs) like you expect it to be a lot of tattoo instead of this one little tattoo. The little sea turtle tattoo is almost like 
like a little dolphin on his ankle. It is a bit cute. Yes. For him. When Yazan first appears in this episode, he's framed by the slowly opening doors of the elevator. His shirt is open and it parallels the elevator doors, all of which draws the eye naturally to his bare, hairless, muscular chest and the tattoo, like a target, directly over his ribcage. The lines of his sternum all point to it. The details on his collar surround it. Sarah looks at him. We look at him. Long moments pass. To be clear... Everything about this shot is set up to make us look at Yazan's chest and to notice the tattoo of a green sea turtle, which itself, the green is really set off from the yellow of his uniform, his darker skin tone, his blonde hair. It's the brightest piece of color in that shot. So bright, in fact, that at first I thought maybe it was a necklace. It wasn't until I studied the shot more closely and saw that there was not anything that looked like a chain, <laughs> that I was like, oh, wait, that's a tattoo. <laughs> but why? Why does he have a tattoo like that? That's what you're going to tell me. It was a rhetorical question for rhetorical purposes. I'm engaged in rhetoric right now. <laughs> First, while I don't have the time right now to dive fully into Japanese tattoo culture and the associations that they convey, I must briefly mention that tattoos were and remain taboo for most Japanese in most parts of Japan. While the Japanese islands do have several ancient, proud, and impressive tattooing traditions, in the late 1800s, the Meiji government, looking for ways to change Japanese society in order to impress the European and American powers, decided that tattooing was barbaric and backwards. So, tattoos, like kissing in public, were banned until the end of World War II, when the American occupation government legalized them. During that half-century-long ban, tattooing went underground, and so it developed a strong association with criminality that lingers to this day. Negative tattoo associations remain strong, in 2012, the right-wing populist mayor of Osaka, which is the second-largest metropolitan area in Japan, circulated a survey to 30,000 city employees asking them to disclose their tattoos and then to either remove the tattoos or be fired. Whoa. Out of this 30,000 employee sample size, more like 33,000, only about 100 employees had tattoos. Almost all of them worked in garbage collection and waste management. Human rights groups objected to this survey, but in 2016, Japan's Supreme Court declared the tattoo hunt to be legally valid. Anti-tattoo feeling was even stronger in the 1980s. So while Yazan's tattoo might look fairly small and non-threatening to Western eyes in 2020, the mere presence of a tattoo combined with his willingness and, let's be clear, eagerness to show it off, reinforces the rough and violent image of him that the show has cultivated. He looks like a gangster, he talks like a gangster, he has tattoos like a gangster. But if that's why he has a tattoo, why is it a green sea turtle? Well, in June 1985, rock superstar, singer for the police, Fade Harkonnen in David Lynch's 1984 Dune movie, and as we have previously discussed, model for Yazan Gable's character design, Sting, released his first solo album. A mix of pop and jazz with strong political overtones, the album performed quite well, hitting number two on Billboard's chart in the US and producing four hit singles. In late July, just over two months before this episode aired, the album was released in Japan, and it was called... The Dream of the Blue Turtles. 
Listening to the album, the whole thing is on YouTube and we'll include a link to the playlist in the show notes, you can see why it might have resonated with the team creating Zeta Gundam. Here are some lyrics from a sampling of the songs on the album. There is The Children's Crusade, which is mostly a lament for the young soldiers sent to their deaths in World War I that drips with disdain for the officers leading them. To quote, The children of England would never be slaves. They're trapped on the wire and dying in waves. The flower of England faced down in the mud and stained in the blood of a whole generation. Corpulent generals safe behind lines, history's lessons drowned in red wine. Poppies for young men, death's bitter trade. All of those young lives betrayed, all for a children's crusade. Really uplifting, like, poppy music. (gasps) Oof. There's also Russians, a hymn for peace written during an era of aggressive Cold War saber-rattling. Quote, There's no such thing as a winnable war. It's a lie we don't believe anymore. Or Love is the Seventh Wave, a song about transcending the limits of ordinary senses to perceive the subconscious world. In the empire of the senses, you're the queen of all you survey, all the cities, all the nations, everything that falls your way. There's a deeper world than this that you don't understand. There's a deeper world than this tugging at your hand. All the bloodshed, all the anger, all the weapons, all the greed, all the armies, all the missiles, all the symbols of that fear. There's a deeper wave than this rising in the world. You could go so far as to call that a kind of new type anthem. I'm thinking about all the wave imagery with Amaro. You can see how it might connect. The eponymous Dream of the Blue Turtles track on the album is an instrumental, just over a minute long, and to my ear it would not sound out of place on the Zeta soundtrack. Here's a brief clip so you can hear what I mean. So the Blue Turtles represented the album and the album represented Sting, and thus the tattoo was a nod to Yazan's origins. But beside that, Sting himself attributed a certain sort of character to the Blue Turtles. In a July 1985 interview with American entertainment magazine Spin, Sting explained that the dream of the Blue Turtles was an actual dream that he had personally experienced. He said, quote, I had a dream that I was back home in Hampshire, looking out the window into this big walled-in garden I have out back, with its very neat flower bed and foliage. Suddenly, out of a hole in the wall came these large, macho, aggressive, and quite drunk blue turtles. They started doing backflips and other acrobatics, in the process, utterly destroying my garden. And, uh, macho, aggressive, utterly wrecking a very neat garden just for the destructive fun of it? That sounds like Yazan. Had he been reading Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics? (laughs) Uh, maybe. (laughs) Sting went on in the same interview to describe the Blue Turtles as representing, for him, the destruction of old ways of thinking. But what are the chances that the person who designed Yazan had actually read that interview? Well, pretty high, actually. Yazan was designed by Nagano Mamoru. And if you remember Nina's research piece on him back in episode 2.28... One of the unique features of Nagano's personality that she highlighted was his obsessive study of the musicians who interested him. As Nina put it, He didn't just listen. He knew which bandmates did which parts of which songs, when, who wrote what, when. Like, all the little details of production and performance were things that he wanted to know about. That interview in Spin Magazine was exactly the sort of information that Nagano would have sought out, learned, and remembered. 
But then, why is the turtle green? It's possible that green simply worked better with the character design they already had. Yazan's colors are quite distinct, and maybe they just felt like the blues they tried didn't work. But it might be more interesting than that, because of a quirk of language. Historically, in Japanese, and actually in many languages, the colors that we call green and blue are described using a single word. While Japanese today uses midori for green and ao for blue, traditionally, ao referred to the whole blue green, greenish blue, bluish green color spectrum. In practice, it often still does. Traffic lights in Japan use the same red, yellow, and green lights for stop, caution, and go, but the green light is called ao shingo. If you look up ao in a dictionary, the first entry is blue, and the second entry is green. Well, or aomori prefecture, which when I first heard it, I was like blue forest, but it just it means green forest. Some linguists believe that this moment when a language separates blue from green is a major development in its understanding of color theory. There are all of these other more nuanced colors like gray and purple that languages usually don't develop words for until the moment that they separate blue and green. Strange, but also completely makes sense. And in Japanese, there are traditionally four colors, black, white, red, and blue. Although one of the sources I read suggested that in the ancient sources, when they use those terms, they don't correspond to our modern understandings of color, that black and white just meant dark and light, and that red and blue just meant like clear versus muddy. Oh, interesting. I was going to say warm versus cold, but hmm. Yeah. And practically every Japanese surname that includes a color, as they do, includes one of those four colors, and not any of the more recent colors that have developed since then. The green sea turtle is a species of sea turtle native to the Japanese islands, and based on its appearance, it seems to be the specific turtle species that's tattooed on Yazan's chest. And in Japanese, the green sea turtle is called Aomigame, the owl-colored sea turtle, the blue sea turtle. And that's why the green sea turtle on Yazan's chest is actually the blue sea turtle from Sting's album. Next time on episode 2.34, A Leader for All Space Noids. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 33 and... Shing! Dramatic grunting. Opulence. Chibi-zabi. Hello, darkness, my old friend. If one more person asks Fa about Shintan-kum... A familiar-looking normal suit. Quattro loses it. Bright looks so darn tired. The blue three guys. The Adzam follower. And it's callbacks all the way down. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. 
Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with us by coming to scenic New York City and shouting, Zeta orphans are the most obedient orphans, on any busy street corner. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Cheeto Bandito. Thanks, Cheeto Bandito. The music used in the AUK Broadcasting Channel segment was Gemini, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward. And the reading was provided by Adam Black, who once again encourages you to save our planet. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Sometimes you have to tell lies, you know, to make the other person feel better, or if it's convenient for you, or in order to seize power. I wish everybody knew about telling lies to make other people feel better. It's a useful skill. (laughs) Feelings are dumb. Yeah. Who needs them? An entire episode as trombone adults from uh, Peanuts. (laughs) Wub wub wub. No, Tom, that's the dubstep version of the show. God, no! (laughs) Those are not the fans we're looking for. (laughs) Since I think it needs to be kept at a lower temperature than the classic hard ice cream. You mean at a warmer temperature? Yes. At a lower amount of coldness. I don't have a source for this. This is purely based off of things I've read and heard people talk about. I have a source for that. Oh, you do? Okay. I'll give it to you. (laughs) How many gill? (laughs) How many poids? (laughs) Hogsheads. A long time ago, we used to be friends, but I haven't thought of you lately at all. Let's uh, forget that I just said that, and let's keep talking about Rekoa for a little bit. Golly gee. Circulated a survey to... Survey. (laughs) Scurvy. (laughs) I'm very conspicuously and definitely (laughs) pressing the record button. It is utterly pressed. The timer is timing.